Guys, it's so great to be with everyone here today. Uh, if you have your Bible with you, please go ahead and turn to Genesis 37 with me. We're going to be turning back to Genesis. It's been a little while, but we're back in Genesis to pick up where we left off. And today we are actually starting the last major section in the book of Genesis. Now, most recently, as we've been in Genesis, we've been studying the life of Jacob together. And along the way, we have seen God miraculously move and transform Jacob. We've seen God speak to Jacob in dreams and face to face. We've seen God protect Jacob in ways both practical and supernatural. And in all of these things, We've seen God move his covenant promises that he made with Abraham forward through the life of Jacob. Now, as we approach the next section here, the story pivots from focusing on Jacob to focusing on Jacob's sons. And there are major questions about how God will continue to make good on his covenant promises to Jacob and Jacob's descendants. Will God continue to multiply the covenant family? Will Jacob's sons trust and follow God's covenant like Jacob? Will they finally obtain possession of the promised land? Will God continue to protect Jacob's offspring? And how exactly will God bless the nations through Jacob's family? Let's keep these questions in mind as we read Genesis 37 together. Genesis 37, Jacob lived in the land of his father's sojournings, in the land of Canaan. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, Hear this dream that I have dreamed. Behold, we were binding sheaves in the field, and behold, my sheaf arose and stood upright. And behold, your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, 
Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he had said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock? And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar. And before they, he came near them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands saying, let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, shed no blood, throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up at uh, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. And they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for 20 shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat. And dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Would you pray with me? Father, as we come before this passage of your word, God, there's so much going on. Lord, there's so many questions that come to our mind as we look at it. 
we pray that you would give us understanding and clarity. Lord, help us to see what you intend to show us about yourself and your people through this time. Lord, and, and affect our hearts and change our lives through studying your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we consider this text before us, it seems that our story is taking a major detour. And far from answering the questions about how God will fulfill his promises, we're left with what seem to be insurmountable obstacles. Instead of finding a family united with purpose, working together to pursue God's plan, and trusting in his protection and provision, we find a family preoccupied with favoritism, hatred, jealousy, and murderous deceit. Rather than protection from God, we see Joseph imprisoned and sold into slavery. Rather than getting closer to the promised land, Joseph is carried farther away, all the way to Egypt. Rather than seeing God intervene, we see this passage is notably absent of any reference to God's actions. He seems to just allow this all to play out. Seeing this leaves us with some uncomfortable questions about God's ability to make good on his promises. Because at first glance, it seems as though sin and evil have the upper hand and God's plans are being completely derailed. Is that really what's going on? As we consider these things, I think the testimony that God has set up for us today and in the coming section of Genesis is going to powerfully address these questions. And here's what I trust that we'll see together. Although evil may sabotage our plans, it cannot stop God's good purposes. Let me say that again. Although evil may sabotage our plans, it cannot stop God's good purposes. Let's consider this passage together in four parts. Part one will be the contradiction of the blessed family. Part two will be the prediction of God's purposes. Point three will be the interruption of evil. And point four will be the assertion of God's promises, providence. So let's look at point one together, the contradiction of the family, of the blessed family. The first four verses in the section give us the major characters and set up the major conflict that permeates this entire passage. Joseph is at odds with his brothers, and this division is fueled by Israel's clear favoritism of Joseph over his brothers. Look at verses 3 to 4 with me again. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. And he made him a robe of many colors. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. If you remember, Israel had 12 sons through his four wives, Leah, Rachel, and his two concubines, Bilhah and Zilpah. But Israel clearly had a favorite of all his wives, Rachel. Rachel was barren for a long time and finally gave birth to Joseph and later his brother Benjamin after Israel's other sons had already been born. 
And what we see here is that Israel clearly favors Joseph over all his other sons. So much so that he gives him this robe of many colors. Now, I'll be honest, we don't quite know what the description of this robe means. Some people say that rather than a robe of many colors, the Hebrew wording here means something like a long-sleeved robe or, or an ornately woven robe. The bottom line is that the robe is intended to differentiate Joseph from the rest and indicate Israel's favor for Joseph. It may even indicate that Israel sees Joseph as the future leader of the family. And this would be understandably a huge insult to Israel's other sons, especially to Reuben, Israel's firstborn. The clear and obvious favoritism towards Joseph fuels Joseph's brother's hatred of him. It says that they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him, as though they couldn't even say hello to him nicely. For Joseph's part, we see that his own actions in this passage clearly fuel this division as well. Verse 2 recounts for us a story that Joseph comes and brings a bad report of his brothers to his father Israel. Now, the phrasing doesn't make it clear whether the report was intended uh, to make Joseph look better than his brothers or simply to be a report of legitimate concern for their well-being. Some people have taken this story to characterize Joseph as an entitled little tattletale. But in studying this passage, honestly, I don't, it doesn't seem so clear to me that that's what's going on. Regardless of Joseph's intentions, though, the story in verse 2 serves to further illustrate the divide between Joseph and his brothers. And frankly, it's no surprise that Joseph would have a bad report to share with his father about his brothers. What we know of Joseph's brothers so far from previous sections is far from flattering. In Genesis 35, 22, we see that Israel's firstborn, Reuben, sleeps with Israel's wife, Bilhah. In Genesis 34, we see Israel's second and thirdborn, Simeon and Levi, deceive and slaughter all the men and boys in the city of Shechem as revenge for their sister Dinah. And the passage before us shows that Joseph's brothers are not only capable of a murderous plot, but willing to go to great lengths to cover up their crimes as well. When we take all of this together, we see a family that is completely dysfunctional and on the brink of implosion. And we, when we remember that this is the family that God has said through which all the families of the earth will be blessed, we have to ask ourselves, how in the world is this going to happen? And this is not a far-off problem for us either. Because I think for many of us, when we take inventory of ourselves, of our own shortcomings and failures and sins, we're tempted to ask, how in the world can God actually love me, let alone work through me? Friends, it is in this very contradiction that we need to be reminded today of this truth. There was never a point in redemptive history where God's people deserved it or earned it. I'm going to say that again. There was never a point in redemptive history 
where God's people deserved it or earned it. They all failed. They all fell short. It has always been and ever will be only by God's mercy that anyone receives his favor. It was true then and it is true today. Take comfort in that. Cling to it. And also know that God does not leave them here. The section of Genesis that we're going to go through is going to culminate in a beautiful repentance and restoration of Joseph and his brothers. But for now, remember this. God's purposes cannot be stopped by the undeservedness of his people. And this brings us to the next section. The prediction of God's purposes. The next section escalates the conflict between Joseph and his brothers with the introduction of Joseph's strange dreams. Look at verse 5 with me. Now Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. In this dream, Joseph tells them that they were all in a field binding sheaves together, and as they were binding sheaves, Joseph's sheaf stands upright while his brother's sheaves gather around it and bow down to it. The brothers have no trouble interpreting what the dream seems to indicate, and they respond with immediate opposition. Verse 8 says, His brother said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and his words. Now, if we're going to understand why these dreams are significant and why his brother's response is so strong, we need to recognize something. So far in the book of Genesis, every time someone has had a dream that's recounted, in the dream, God is directly speaking to that person. For instance, in Genesis 28, Israel has a dream about a ladder reaching up to heaven. And in that dream, God speaks directly to him. In fact, this dream here that Joseph has, it's the first time in the whole Bible that God doesn't directly speak in the dream. So with that in mind, it seems that what Joseph is dreaming is not just some strange fantasy, but the dream is received as though it may be from God and may actually be predicting future events. And to add further weight to this, Joseph has a second dream with a very similar meaning. Only in the second dream, Joseph's whole family is bowing to him. We have to bring up here that in just a few chapters, Joseph himself indicates that duplicate dreams of this sort were thought by the people in that time as a confirmation that the dream was sure to come true. Look at the words that Joseph says to Pharaoh later on in the story in Genesis 41, 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that the thing is fixed by God and God will surely bring it about. This is also implied in our passage by Israel himself. Rather than rejecting the implications of the dream, Israel ponders what it might mean. Verse 11 says, And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. So what's going on here? These verses indicate that God himself is giving Joseph a picture of what is going to happen in the future. 
And Joseph's telling it to his brothers indicate that Joseph believes it will happen. His brothers seem to also understand what it means. But rather than supporting it, they are thrown into jealousy by it. They can't stand the thought of Joseph ruling over them. And as we will soon see, they will do everything in their power to stop it from coming true. As we think about the implications of these things, I think it's worth drawing out two things for ourselves today. First, a warning. Be warned that it is possible to truly understand what God's word says and yet stand in denial or opposition to what it means for our lives. Joseph's brothers give us a sobering example of this. They clearly understand the dreams, but they are so blinded by their own desire that they reject it rather than submit to the God that will bring it about. Second, an encouragement. Be encouraged here. Take heart if the way that God is bringing about his purposes in your life seem so very different from what you expected them to be. Through his dreams here, Joseph did indeed get a glimpse of something that God really would do in his life. Just read Genesis 42, 6 to see it happen. But the path that God chose for these things to happen was so unpredictable, so full of hardships and trials and detours that only God could see how it all fit together. Christian, we must humbly remember that while God gives us much in terms of what he will accomplish in our lives, he often leaves us in the dark on how he will bring it about. This could not be more important for us as we consider the next part of the story because the hatred and jealousy that is built up explodes and turns jo Joseph's life completely upside down, which brings us to the next point, the interruption of evil. This next section of the story brings us into the heart of the whole passage, the shocking crime Joseph's brothers commit against him. We see in verse 12 through 17 that Joseph's brothers go to tend Jacob, uh, Israel's flock near Shechem. Israel wants to make sure that his, brother, that his sons are okay, so he sends Joseph to see if all is well with them. Joseph willingly obeys his father and goes. And this was not a short journey either. The distance was about 50 miles. It would have taken Joseph about four to five days to travel and when he finally gets there, he can't even find his brothers. Serendipitously, he comes across a man who happens to overhear them saying that they would go to Dothan, a town which is about 15 miles away. Now, instead of giving up, Joseph goes the extra 15 miles to seek out after his brothers. And what happens next is chilling. Look at verses 18 and 19 with me. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what be will become of his dreams. Joseph's brothers 
Hatred and jealousy for him has become so great that they eagerly conspire together to kill him and cover it up. And it's only Reuben's intervention that saves Jacob's, uh, Joseph's life. Reuben convinces them instead to simply throw him in a pit, likely a deep cistern that would fill up with water. So Reuben is suggesting to his brothers, instead of killing him outright, let's let nature take its course and allow him to either starve or drown. We see in verse 22 that Reuben himself intends to rescue Joseph later. But before we let Reuben off the hook here, we need to recognize that his motives in this passage are unclear. It's possible that he's doing this in order to restore his lost favor with his father. Regardless of his motives, his desire to protect Joseph here only goes so far. He's unwilling to outright oppose his brothers. And furthermore, when they do sell Joseph into slavery, rather than going after Joseph to rescue him or to buy him back, he goes along with his brother's plan to deceive their father and abandons Joseph. And so Joseph arrives and his brothers grab him, strip him of his robe and throw him in the pit. And if you thought that at this moment they might be feeling guilt and shame for their actions, perhaps second-guessing how far they've gone, look at what they do next in verse 25. Then they sat down to eat. Let's pause here and think about how callous their actions are here. Although we don't get any indication from this passage about how Joseph responded, Later in the story, the brothers recount this event. And in Genesis 42, 21, they say, they said to one another, in truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. These actions are unimaginable. How far into the depths of jealousy do you have to go to be willing to do this to your own brother? And then to be able to sit down and have a meal, ignoring his cries of desperation as you do? How does this happen? Years of unchecked hatred turned into jealousy as they imagine Joseph actually reigning over them. As they embrace this jealousy, they not only hate him, but are willing to do what it takes to destroy the possibility of Joseph's dreams ever becoming reality. And so when they see an opportunity to give full vent to their feelings of hatred and jealousy without fear of consequence, they are so hardened towards their own brother that they jump at the opportunity. Friends, we would do well here to pause and see something very important. This passage points us to the hardening of sin that can happen when we allow it to go unopposed in our lives. Sin, when left unchecked, can carry you down to unimaginable depths. It never starts with pornography addiction or indifference towards your spouse or explosive outbursts of violent rage or losing your job due to poor performance. But these things often represent countless times of tolerating lesser sins, entertaining lustful glances and thoughts, Harboring bitterness from disappointment towards your spouse, unchecked anger, unexcused laziness. Don't be deceived, my friends. Sin will take you down a path 
you never imagined you could go on to. And just like Joel's exhortation from a couple of weeks ago on our need for community, we would do well here to remember the words of Hebrews 3.13. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Turning back to the passage here, we can see that thankfully, this is not the end for Joseph because as his brothers sit there eating, they get another idea because they see a caravan of traders coming by. Look at verse 26. Then Judah said to his brothers, what profit is there if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites and let not our hand be upon him for he is our brother our own flesh, and his brothers listened to him. What comforting words. Let's not kill our brother. After all, he is our flesh and blood. Instead, let's just sell him into slavery. How kind and brotherly of Judah. So, for 20 shekels of silver, Joseph's brothers sell him, and he is taken to Egypt, inevitably to a lifetime of slavery. In their minds, the dreams are dead. And Joseph himself is as good as dead. Evil here seems to have the final word on the matter and completely sabotaged Israel's plans for his family and guaranteed Joseph's dreams will never come to fruition. But thankfully, evil will not have the final word. Which leads us to the last point, the assertion of God's providence. On the surface, this last section seems to go exactly how the brothers had hoped. Once Reuben realizes it's too late to secretly rescue Joseph, he falls in line with the plot to deceive Israel. So the brothers kill a goat and cover Joseph's special robe in its blood. Then they send it to Israel saying, please identify whether it is your son's or not. Notice they, they can't even bring themselves to call him brother. And Israel falls for their deception. Verse 33 tells us that he immediately identifies it as Joseph's robe and concludes that Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. And he's understandably devastated. But it's even worse. Think about how the brothers cover up what they did. They just leave it here for Israel to draw his own conclusions. Now, Israel is the one who sent Joseph alone 50 miles to go after his brothers. What do you think Israel would assume? He would assume not only that it's his fault that Joseph is dead, but on top of that, he would be haunted by this horrific image of how he died. Joseph being torn to pieces by wild animals. And our passage ends here with two contrasting statements. Look at verse 35 through 36 with me. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son, mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. Meanwhile. You see, we as the reader get a perspective of what's going on, that Israel doesn't have in this moment. 
Israel assumes that Joseph is gone and there's no hope to, or comfort to be found. But we as the reader see that Joseph is not only alive, but he's now in Egypt. And it's here that we're clued into a bigger picture that no one in this story has. Because what we're going to see in the coming weeks as we walk through this final section of Genesis is that it's no mere coincidence that Joseph ends up in Egypt. Instead, we are going to see an incredible unfolding of God's providence because it is in Egypt, though he comes as a slave, that Joseph is ultimately elevated to second in command over the whole kingdom. And so, in effect, the actions of his brothers here to prevent Joseph's dreams from coming true provide the catalyst for the dream's fulfillment. But not only that, we are going to see that Joseph's enslavement in Egypt ultimately leads to the preservation of Joseph's entire family and the entire nation of Egypt. To the point that years later, Joseph can look back at these events and say to his brothers, and God sent me before you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And later, to exclaim his most famous words, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. And it's when we get this perspective, when we look back over the whole story and see that far from God and his plans being diverted through the actions of others, we see that God is coordinating these events so that his purposes will be fulfilled. And speaking of how God's providence directs the actions of this passage, Bruce Waltke says this, in retrospect, Everything happens at just the right time. Joseph providentially wastes time wandering around Shechem looking for his brothers when he happens to meet a man who had happened to overhear the brothers say that they would never... Um, that, I'm sorry, let me start that again. When he happens to meet a man who had happened to overhear the brothers say where they would go. Without Joseph's delay, the Ishmaelite merchants would never have happened to come along at the right time. On the spur of the moment, it occurs to Judah to sell Joseph. So Joseph happens to end up in Egypt. The favoritism of a, of a father, sibling rivalry, culminating in selling the favorite into Egypt as a slave, the crime of the century, and the cover-up all play a part in God's providence to save his elect. Friends, we know that God does not delight in evil, but we also know that evil cannot stop God from accomplishing his purposes. And what this means for us is that whatever we are going through, we can put our faith in the fact that God will continue to work good in our lives. In fact, he is using the very circumstances we are walking through to do just that. The reality is, that God does not give us all the answers for why he allows so much evil, suffering, and sin to exist in the world right now. He gives us some answers, not all. 
But what he does do is show us again and again how he can use even the brokenness of this world to ultimately bring about good, especially in the lives of his people. In fact, the Bible is filled with testimonies just like this one of God doing just that. And when we think about this, it doesn't just change the way we view trials, but it changes the way we view everything in our lives, and it gives it all a broader perspective. From the mundane to the extraordinary, from the routine doctor's visit to the unexpected hospital stay, from the job we can't get to the job we feel stuck in, from the family he's given us to the neighbors he's put us around. In all of these things, we can trust not only that God is in control, but that he is ultimately using them to work his good purposes for us, even when we can't see how. As we conclude this morning, we can step back and see that this is only the beginning of the story for Joseph and his brothers. And God is going to use these events not only to save the lives of Joseph's family, but ultimately to bring repentance and reconciliation for Joseph and his brothers. And all of this unfolds in a way that points us to the greater reconciliation to come. Have you noticed how this story whispers the story of the gospel? Joseph beloved of his father, was taken from his home and brought to Egypt for the ultimate redemption of his family. Jesus, beloved of his heavenly father, left his heavenly home and came to earth so that he could redeem all those who believe in him. Joseph was betrayed by his brothers, especially his brother Judah, and sold for 20 shekels of silver. Jesus was betrayed by his friend Judas, and sold for 30 pieces of silver. Joseph's suffering as a slave would ultimately lead to reconciliation between him and his family. Jesus' suffering and death as a man would ultimately reconcile us to God and free us from our slavery to sin. Joseph was exalted in the kingdom of Egypt so that he could stand and advocate for the well-being of his family. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the heavenly throne so that he can now, ever, and eternally advocate for our well-being. Joseph points us to Jesus. His story points us to Jesus' story. And in all of this, may we ever trust in the God who orchestrated both stories who is orchestrating our story in this very moment. Will you pray with me?